Good to be with you. It is always good to be with you guys. Whether it's here or online, it's good to be together. And I'm excited about uh, the opportunity we're going to have in a few moments to join, as Pastor Rick said, with the rest of the world, believers around the world, in sharing communion together. And I hope you'll continue to be a part of that if you are watching this service online. So as you all know, we recently marked the 20th anniversary since the 9-11 attacks. And like most of you, the events of that day are tattooed into my memory. You know, Susie was just reminding me that that solo that she sang just a few moments ago, she sang when we gathered here a few days after that attack on our country. We gathered here in this worship space as a community of faith together. And, uh, and she sang that song, and it was powerful then, and it's still powerful today. I've been um, watching, maybe some of you have been doing the same, watching uh, programs about 9-11, listening to some podcasts, reading some commentaries uh, on that day. And as I've been watching and seeing those images again, all of the emotions of that day came rushing back. The sense of shock, of absolute horror, sadness, and of course, anger. You know, I think our country as a whole was traumatized that day. We felt it in a way that was raw and was real. And because of those feelings and those images, it's why we carry it with us and we can all remember what you were doing and what was going on with you and in your life in those hours of 9-11 course the trauma was experienced exponentially higher by people who lost a loved one on that day. You know in many ways I believe that we as a country went through and in some ways are still dealing with trauma in 2020. A worldwide pandemic that has now claimed over 700,000 American lives. An economic loss, political and racial upheaval, and all of us, every one of us, have been affected by these traumas. And for those who have experienced them firsthand, perhaps lost a loved one to COVID, lost a job, feel the direct impact of racial injustice. The trauma is exponentially greater for you. The American Psychological Association defines trauma as an emotional response to a terrible event. Among the long-term effects, they say, 
unpredictable emotions and strained relationships. Unpredictable emotional responses and strained relationships. I wonder if that's not what we're experiencing in our country, but in our community as well, within our communities, as we're seeing and hearing about and experiencing anger, strained relationships, people distancing themselves from others who they once considered friends, part of their community. I wonder if it's not driven by the trauma of the last, traumas really, of the last year and a half. There's a powerful story in the Gospel of John about a traumatized woman. Some of the trauma that she experienced was no doubt a result of poor decisions that she made. But other parts of her trauma were things that she had no control over. But she was experiencing great trauma. Interestingly, John's gospel dedicates a full chapter. All of chapter 4 is about the experience of Jesus with this woman. We don't know her name, and so we simply refer to her as the woman at the well. So I want to look at her story and uh, unpack it a little bit as we close out this uh, series that we're calling Underlying Conditions. This morning's underlying condition, of course, is trauma. Trauma. So as the story opens up, as chapter 4 opens up, Jesus is with his disciples. They have been on a long journey, and Jesus is tired, he's exhausted, he's thirsty. It's noontime, and they come to a well in, the, uh, in Samaria, and Jesus decides he's going to stay at this well while his disciples go into town to see if they can find some lunch. And so this is where the story picks up. Beginning with verse 7, it says this. So a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to get some food. The woman was surprised. For Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I, a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? So again, a little background here. Uh, the Jews and the Samaritans were hostile toward each other as two individual cultures even though they share a common faith. Their faith is rooted in Abraham. It's rooted in the stories of Moses and so forth. So they share a common faith, a common history, and yet there is this enmity that they have toward each other. And it's, by modern comparison, I would say it's similar to what the Protestants and Catholics experience in Northern Ireland. 
both are Christ worshipers. Both come out of that faith story, and yet they hate each other. That's sort of what it was like between Samaritans and Jews. And additionally, this woman points out, hey, in case you didn't realize it, dude, I'm a woman. You don't speak to women. So part of the culture of this time was that men and women who don't know each other don't engage in casual conversation out in public. It's not something that they wanted to do. And so this woman is going to get water, and the last thing she wanted to see on that day at the well was this guy. The whole reason she was at the well at that time, commentators tell us, it's noontime. What they point out is that typically people will go to the well outside of town in the early morning while it's still cooler because it's hard work to fill these buckets and then to carry them back to the village and back to your home. And so they typically would go in the morning. She's there at noon and she is there precisely because she wants to be left alone. And the last thing she wants to deal with is a chatty Jewish dude <laughs> who wants to bug her, right? Oi. <laughs> you know what I love about Jesus? One of the things I love so much about Jesus, but one of the things I love about Jesus is that he refused to abide by ignorant social or religious norms that put barriers between people. When Jesus saw this woman at the well, he didn't see a Samaritan. He didn't see a female. He saw one of God's beautiful creations. And so he just engaged at that level. So picking up the story, this is what it says. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, well, you'd ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? So what's happening here is Jesus is beginning. He sees this woman. He, he feels, I believe, he understands, oh, this is a traumatized woman. And so he begins to shift the conversation from, hey, could you give me a drink? It's a hot day, to a spiritual conversation about living water. I think Jesus sees that her soul is parched and dry and in need of refreshment, in need of living water. And her response is classic. You see, when you're living with trauma 
and you've got all of these emotions that you don't know what to do with, there is just below the surface often anger and it often gets expressed as sarcasm. So in effect, what she says is, oh, living water. Where is this living water? And where's your bucket and rope that you're going to get this living water from? And then she gets into a, a historical, tries to get Jesus into a historical and theological debate about the differences between Samaritans and Jews. It's another technique of traumatized, right? I don't want to deal with what's going on inside me, so I'm going to deal with all of these externals. And I'm going to do it in a way that's probably going to tick you off so that we end up in a fight so we don't have to deal with each other. But Jesus is undeterred. And so here's where the story picks up. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, pointing to the well. I, the water I give will never be thirsty again. I'm sorry, but those who drink of this water will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring <clears throat> within them, giving them eternal life. Wow. Living water for the soul. Bubbling up. This image is a powerful one, right? So here they are in this desert environment <clears throat> talking about water. Jesus is physically thirsty. This woman is spiritually, emotionally, relationally thirsty. Her soul is dry. And he's talking about a living water that's going to bubble up. You know, what a great image. And give eternal life. <clears throat> I need some basic water. <laughs> so talk among yourselves. I'll be right with you. I'm feeling the Jesus side on this right now. Eternal life, right? When does eternal life start? Eternal life doesn't start after you die. Eternal life starts when you acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. Because the promise of Jesus is for an abundant life now that will carry us all the way through and to the other side of the grave and on into eternity, but it starts now. He's offering her living water to quench her soul and to give her back her life, new, forgiven, and whole. But unpredictable responses, right? She isn't interested in what he has to say. And again, I think her response is that of sarcasm. Great, she says, living water that I'll never thirst again. Wouldn't that be great? 
So every day I won't have to come to this stupid well and fill these stupid buckets and carry them back to my stupid house. Where do I get that? Sign me up for that. Right? And at this point, Jesus begins to zero in on the woman's trauma. She says, where do I get this living water? And Jesus says, before I answer that, I want you to go get your husband and bring him back. And she has to admit, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, right, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. It must have been like an electric shock that went through her body. He has honed in on the place of her trauma. And now she's thinking, oh, I get it. This guy's a prophet. And so what she do? She tries to get back to a safer conversation. Back to a debate that Samaritans and Jews have about where worship takes place. Samaritans say it's on a mountain, the Jews say, in the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus briefly addresses her question, but then pivots to the greater truth about worship and who he is. So verses 23 and 24, this is what it says. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And then he lets her know that he is the Messiah. What he's saying is that God is no longer to be confined to a place or to a method of worship, but that it's going to be worship from the heart, from the spirit, from the soul, and it will be in truth, and Jesus, the Messiah, is the truth of God. He's introducing the Samaritan woman to himself as the Messiah. In John's gospel, it's the first time that Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah and it's to a Samaritan woman. And this new covenant that God is introducing to the world that is no longer about the law and sacrifice, but is about grace through faith in the Messiah. God is not confined to places. In John's Gospel, it tells, he tells her that he is now the Messiah. In the uh, series 
about Jesus' life that's out. We've talked about it a few times here. It's called The Chosen. And in The Chosen, this story uh, is displayed, and it's so powerful. I've read this story countless times. I've preached on it a number of times. But watching it in the way that they presented it in The Chosen literally brought me to tears. They're at this point in this discussion and she's so uncomfortable that she's gathering up her buckets and she's getting ready to leave and Jesus calls out the name of a man. It's the name of her first husband. And he says, he was not a good man and he abused you and it damaged your faith and belief in God and in marriage. And she's stunned. And then he names the second husband. And what happened there? And I thought, wow. That's it. I always wondered, you know, like, what was it about the fact that he knew that she had five husbands was so powerful to her? But what if it wasn't just that surface information, but what if he went deep into her traumatic experience? And in some profound way, spoke in to her trauma. I came across this quote from, um, from a book written by a woman named uh, Danielle Burnock. This is what she wrote. Trauma is personal. It doesn't disappear unless it's validated. When it is ignored, the silent screams continue internally, heard only by the one held captive. When someone enters into the pain, and hears the screams, then the healing can begin. I wonder if that's what happened on that day to that woman at that well talking to Jesus. The Messiah entered into her pain and healing began. And so this woman who was an outcast in her own town, carrying deep wounds, some perhaps self-inflicted by bad decisions, others inflicted on her by things that she had nothing to do with, no control over, and her feelings of being isolated and angry and sad and defeated are beginning to heal. As she meets the Messiah, and taste for the first time living water that's restoring her soul and giving her the promise of eternal life. In that moment then, she runs back to her village, back to the place where she's been rejected and harassed and ignored. She runs back to that place to tell everybody in the village, Come and see this man who's told me everything I ever did. 
Her healing is so that she wants to share it with everyone else. You know, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, taught some amazing things. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? It's not that those traumas or the trauma behind those things is a blessing. It's that in those times of brokenness, we get to experience firsthand living water that bubbles up in our soul and gives us eternal life. Beth Moore, who is a gifted Bible teacher and writer, said something that I had to read a couple of times before I began to get it. She wrote this, I am better off healed than I ever was unbroken. I am better off healed than I ever was unbroken. When you're broken at the end of yourself, that's when the healing power becomes real for you, powerful for you. Jesus understands human trauma because Jesus experienced it. He experienced rejection and betrayal and pain and fear. And ultimately, he was broken so that we might be made whole. That our broken relationship with the Father might be repaired. And that we might take our place as sons and daughters of the Creator and experience spirit and truth. So I don't know today what your trauma might be. I don't know where those places of brokenness are for you. But here's what I would say to all of us who all experience trauma. Don't go the way of defeat and sarcasm. Keeping your distance from others. Choose instead the living water of the Spirit. Choose instead the truth of his resurrection. Choose instead eternal life.